series. And this summer we have we started with Psalm 42, and we're now through into 47. And when you get there, let me tell you what this psalm's about and give you a little bit of the background material on the psalm. Psalm 47. Mine has a title over it. Now everybody, not all Bibles have titles over the Psalms. This would be the bold letters, not the lighter letters. But mine has praise to the Lord, the ruler of the earth. Yours may have something else. And this psalm describes the enthronement of God as king over the earth. Uh, God taking his throne and ruling over the earth. But when the psalm talks about the enthronement or the exaltation of God, it's different than you imagine. Don't think about God sitting on his throne in heaven. This is about God sitting on a throne on earth during David's time. Okay, so it's the enthronement of God over earth, but a little different than you can see. Now the historical setting for this psalm is David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of Jerusalem. It's not in Jerusalem prior to this psalm. Okay? So that story of David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem is found in 2 Samuel. So I want you to mark Psalm 47, and I want you to turn back to 2 Samuel. Okay? So you'll go to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Keep on moving, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and you'll come to the Samuel books. And you'll find 2 Samuel, but when you get there, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Okay? This is the historical setting for Psalm 47. You can really uh, not understand the Psalms in their fullness and really you'll understand the historical context to which they're written. Now, when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, look at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are bone, your bone, and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be a ruler over Israel. Now, King Saul is dead at this writing. Okay? He has died in battle. Uh, Israel is in a war. In fact, they're in a series of little wars. And now David steps in to take over as the king of Israel in uh, Saul's absence. So therefore, verse 13 says, all the elders, or verse 11 says, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them. So he replaces King Saul at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah, seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all of Israel and Judah. 
Now notice that when he's made king, notice where he starts his rule. He rules in Hebron. That's where he's ruling from. Hebron. Not Jerusalem. Why not? Because Jerusalem is occupied by foreign troops. David is basically in exile. He's outside that city. And he's in Hebron, which is 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Now, 20 miles doesn't seem much to us in the day of modern conveniences and, and uh, the automobile, but imagine how far it would be when your main means of conveyance was your feet or a horse. You know, a person who really walks fairly fast today can go about four miles an hour, can't they? But they can't keep that pace up forever. That's usually what you would do on a treadmill if you're pretty good shape. But in those days, they didn't walk at that pace. They, were, they had sandals, and they weren't on a treadmill, and they weren't on paved roads. They were on dirt roads with stones. And they had to compete with the animals. And that was like a two or three days journey on foot between Hebron in the south and Jerusalem in the north. So they're occupying troops in Jerusalem to the north, and David is having rule to rule his country from Hebron. Does that make sense? So look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. That was who was occupying the land. Who spoke to David saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in. You come in here, we'll, we'll send out lame people and blind people. They'll beat you. Can't beat us. Can't get us out of this land. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. This, that is, the city of David. Okay, so he goes and he takes the city. But that's not the end of the conflicts. It's not the end of battles. There are more to be fought. And we see another example down in verse 17. It says, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David the king over Israel, the Philistines went up to search for David. So he defeated the Jebusites. Now the Philistines go up to search for David. David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines also went and deployed themselves to the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver me and will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will, de I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hands. And David defeats the Philistines. And they're vanquished. That's the historical setting of Psalm 47. Look down at verse 25. It says, And David did so, and the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So now we have the Philistines who are vanquished. Now look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Again David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, 
who dwells between the cherubim. Now notice that the ark is not in Jerusalem. Just as David was basically exiled from Jerusalem, so was the ark. And now the enemies are vanquished and David is going to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. Now what does it say about that ark at the end of verse 2? It says that is where God dwells. Remember there was the ark of the covenant. It was a box. It had the Ten Commandments in it. It had Aaron's rod in it. It had some manna in it. And over the ark was a lid called the mercy seat. And there were two cherubim on each side of the ark, and their wings came up, and they touched. Made out of pure gold. And God said to Moses, when the tabernacle was built, I will come and I will dwell between the wings of the cherubim in the tabernacle, and I will dwell among my people. So God dwells between the wings of the cherubim there in verse 2. But the ark is not in Jerusalem. The ark is not now in the tabernacle. God is exiled. Just as David was exiled, guess what? God was exiled. Exiled out of Jerusalem. What in the world does that mean, God's exiled? When I say God's exiled out of Jerusalem, what do you think that would mean? That would mean the gods of the foreign people, like the Jebusites who are controlling Jerusalem, their god is in control. That's what it looks like to the mass of the people. And where is the god of the Jews? Exiled. Well, now David, in the name of God, wins all these battles, and guess what he's going to do? He's going to pick up the ark, he's going to bring it back to the city of David, Jerusalem, and God's going to be right back where he belongs. And he's going to be enthroned, and he's enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. Okay. So, for a while, before he gets it there, it dwells in the house of Obed for a while, and we won't go through all that, but you can see that in verse 12. Now, it was told David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed, Edom, and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was in this guy's house. So David went, and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, clothes of a priest. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. They brought it up to Jerusalem. Now I want you to remember something. I want you to remember these words. They brought it up with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Can you remember those? If I say what words are you to remember, you're going to say, well, we're supposed to remember Shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I want you to say that. Sounding and the sound of the trumpet. Because five minutes later, I'm going to ask you that, and I want to see how many of you also have all, Alzheimer's disease like I do. Okay? So remember that. Shouting and sound of the trumpet. Okay, now look at verse 16. Now, as the ark of the Lord came 
into the city of David, that's Jerusalem, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw the king David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. So there is the setting for Psalm 47. So take your Bibles and now move back to Psalm 47. Okay? God is now exalted and enthroned as king over Jerusalem. But how is he enthroned? What is his throne? His throne is the ark. You got that? His throne is the ark. And where is the ark now located? In the tabernacle in the city of Jerusalem. That is the setting. That is the historical context in which Psalm 47 is about. Okay? It's about placing the ark and enthroning God over Jerusalem in the city of David. Okay? Now, are you back to Psalm 47? Notice the superscription. It's written to the chief musician. This is a song. We see that in the next word. A psalm, it says. Uh, this is a song that is written by or to be sung by the sons of Korah. It's directed to the chief musician who's probably going to put it in some sort of an arrangement and then it will be part of the worship service. Psalm 47, we're going to outline it this way. There's two stanzas in this song. Stanza number 1, verses 1 through 4. Stanza number 2, verses 5 through 9. Okay? Let's look at stanza number one. First of all, you're going to notice there's, remember what they're doing, the ark is being brought in, God's being enthroned, there is a summons to worship. Look what it says. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Now notice this call to worship is a call to do two things. It's a call to shout out to God and it's a call to clap your hands. In other words, it's a call to worship God with your hands through clapping. How many people say, I hate clapping in the church? Look at this. Not only are they going to clap, they're commanded to clap in this case. And they are to raise their voice in what's called here a shout. So we have voices and hands. And that would describe, if you're shouting and you're clapping in a baseball game, what does that indicate? You're what? Yeah, you're happy, you're excited, you're joy. The crew's just knocked in the run in the bottom of the tenth. We won the game! Yay! We won! Remember when you used to do that for the Cowboys? <laughs> I'm convinced if we realize that God was in our midst, as Israel now realized that God was in their midst, we would be just as excited. But for some reason, we don't really believe that He's in their midst. Oh, in some sort of way, maybe. But uh, They realize it, and they said, hey, you need to let it, let it all out. Don't hold back any emotions. And so they are called to shout and to clap their hands. Okay? 
And one of the reasons is they won the victory. They won the battle. Now God's back where he belongs. He's no longer in exile. He's the God in charge. Okay? So here's the reason for the shouting and the singing and the clapping. Look at verse 2. Because for the Lord Most High is awesome. Uh, some translations, I think the old King James says, God is terrible. I like that. He's a terror to his enemies. And to his friends, he's awesome. You know, if you were a little kid that used to get beat up all the time, and you called out to your, called your brother, who was a weightlifter, he'd be a terror to your enemies. But guess what? To you, he'd be awesome. And that's how Israel sees God. He is awesome. He's a terror to his enemies. Now look at the title that God's given here in verse 2. He's called the Lord Most High, which in the Hebrew is El Elyon, which means, uh, translated, it means, uh, he who causes things to be. El Elyon. He who causes things to be. When he speaks, things happen. Whether it's creation, whether it's in a battle, God causes things to happen. In this case, he has allowed David to win the victory. And when you realize that, that should cause you to get excited. Now there's a second reason for the clapping and the shouting. Look at the end of verse 2. He is a great God over the earth. He is a great God over the earth. Now the other nations had gods. But Israel claims that their God is not just a God, a tribal God. He is the God over all the earth, not just over Israel. And we need to realize that our God rules the world whether people realize it or not. He's in charge. Our job is to call people to pledge their allegiance to this God. To tell them about this God. This is what evangelism and missions is all about. Whether they realize it or not, God is the God who is over all the earth. He's over all the earth by virtue of him being the creator of the earth. Okay? Now, look at God's plan for us. <clears throat> Verse 3. This is future. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our Feet. That is a promise that the psalmist is puts in the song that all the nations will come under the authority of Israel. Remember, this is written in the context of the nation of Israel. The nations will be under our feet. And when David ruled, guess what? His enemies were under his feet. To have an enemy under your feet means you're victorious over your enemies. Prophetically, the church read that verse to say that Jesus, being David's successor, according to the covenant of David, that all enemies one day would be put under what? His feet. And Christ will triumph over all the enemies, and we who are God's people, they'll be under our enemy, under our feet as well. His enemies, Psalm 2 says, shall be made his footstool. Okay, now look at verse 4. He will choose, now this is for the nation of Israel, watch this, He will choose our inheritance for us. The excellence of Jacob, whom He loves. Now, Israel's inheritance is the land. See, now if you just read this, the 21st century, you don't understand that language. But for Jews, that phrase, our inheritance, is the land. Remember how God told Abraham, I've got a land for you. 
I will take you to a land that I've chosen. He assigns spots in this land for Israel. So he says he will choose our inheritance, which means our land. And that phrase in verse 4, the excellence of Jacob, or the pride of Jacob, describes Israel's pride and joy, which is its land. So this is a promise that was made to Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. We find it fulfilled in under King David. And one day it will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he reigns over the earth. And he'll reign from Jerusalem on David's throne, the scripture says. So you can see this has different levels of meaning, first for Israel and then for the church. And then you see the word Selah, which means that the chief musician says at this point, uh, we're going to pause. Now what's the pause for? Well, it could be to think about what's just been said. Ponder it, right? It could be a climax where the music goes up and there's a big climax and then it stops and there's this sudden stillness. It could be an indication of a moment of anticipation, a moment of suspense where the music stops as the song stops right here and there's sort of a musical interlude, but it's a suspenseful stop where it just stops and suddenly there's dead stillness and you say, what's coming next? And here we see what comes next. In stanza 2, verse 5. God has gone up psalmist says. God ascends. Ascends where? Ascends to his throne. He's going up to Jerusalem to be put the ark is going to be put in the tabernacle. That's where God's going. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of the trumpet. So here is God's enthronement. The ark has returned to Jerusalem. Uh, it's placed in the tabernacle. God rules between the wings of the cherub. Now, what words were you supposed to remember? Now, what do you see there in verse 5? Out in the sound of the trumpet. These are the exact same words and exact same order in Hebrew as in 2 Samuel chapter 6, which gives us this historical context. This is God being enthroned between the wings of the cherubim in Jerusalem as the ark is brought back to the city. Okay? So that's important that you get that. Hey, did the early how do you think the early church would read something like that? Yes, they understood its historical meaning, but they would think about Christ coming back to Jerusalem. Christ descended with a shout, with a trumpet blowing. See, shout and trumpets. That's that same kind of concept of an enthronement, of God being enthroned. And here should be our response. Look at this. These are commands. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For the king, for God is king over the earth. Sing praises with understanding. So what would you say that we should do in light of the fact that God is enthroned? I guess we should sing praises. Look at verse 5, 6. Sing praises, number 1. Look at the next phrase. Sing praises, number 2. Verse 6. Sing praises, number 3. Fourth, in verse 6, sing praises. Look at the end of verse 7. Sing praises. Five times we are commanded to sing praises. So what should we be doing? When we realize that God is exalted as king, we should be singing praises. Now look what it says in verse 6. Notice to whom we sing praises. Sing praises 
to God. Look at the end of verse 6. Praises to our king. Look at verse 7. For God is king of all the earth. This is why we should sing praises. So notice we are shouting. Probably the shouting means the singing praises. We're clapping our hands. We're exuberant over the fact that God reigns as king. If you go to the book of Revelation and you look through the book of Revelation and you take all the scenes where the curtains of heaven are drawn back and John the Revelator gets a vision of heaven, you know what he sees? People singing praises. Praises to God who's on the throne. That's what's happening in heaven where God is enthroned in heaven right now. That is the response that we should give in the fact that we realize that God is king. Uh, Drake Patterson's friend, uh, uh, Robert Coleman, wrote a book on that very subject. It's called The Songs of Heaven, where he goes through and he looks at every passage in the book of Revelation where songs are mentioned. and They're always praising God for being king. And, uh, you know, we don't like this. Many of us uh, in our generation, we we don't like to clap too much. We don't want to shout. We don't want to sing praises. We want old hymns, you know, the old rugged cross, and things that give you some content there, uh, theological content. But here, there's no theological content in the sense that what we're doing is we're just praising God. We're praising God because He is King. And if we don't get used to it now, we're not going to have much fun when we get to heaven. Because that's what they do all the time in heaven. So I don't know what we do in that situation. So if we're if we don't like to praise God now, we need to you know have a heart check. We need to get our hearts checked. We need, maybe we don't praise God now because we really don't understand the ramifications and the fullness of that meaning that God reigns. If we really thought about it, uh, we would just start. We wouldn't just be clapping. We'd be jumping. What was David doing? He was twirling and dancing and. This is King David. I mean, he's doing, you know, you would think this guy's Pentecostal or something. <laughs> David was Pentecostal before Pentecostal was cool. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, we would be jumping too. So anyway, let's go on. Look at the conclusion here. Verse 8. God reigns over the nations. Notice plural. Uh, God has an empire. God has a kingdom made of many nations. He rules over all the nations. When Rome ruled the world, it was called the Roman Empire. Why? Because it controlled one nation, Palestine. It controlled another nation, Syria. It controlled another nation, Italy. It controlled. A, that's what an empire is. God rules over nations. He has an empire. He has a kingdom in which He rules. He sits on His holy Throne. The princes means the rulers of the people, meaning of these nations. Look what they've done. They have gathered together. And look how he describes these people, the nations, the princes of the nations. He calls them the people of the God of Abraham. Look at that. The nations in this verse are called the people of of the God of Abraham. That means God rules over the nations. That means he rules over the Jebusites. God rules over the nations. That means he rules over the Philistines. There are rulers gathered together. 
of these Gentile nations, and it calls them the people of the God of Abraham. Gentiles in this verse are called the people of the God of Abraham. What in the world is he talking about? What's happening here? Because Gentiles now are submitting to the rule of King David, and in doing so, they're submitting to the rule of God. And they're recognizing the God of Israel is the one true God and creator, and they are in droves bowing down and they're worshiping him. That's what God's covenant with Abraham was all about. Through you, the nations will be blessed. Remember when God said that to Abraham? And what are we to do as Christians? We're to go out and make disciples of all what? Nations. See, we are to bring the nations under the reign of God. So, Jesus Christ will rule over the nations. Uh, in Psalm 2, God says to his son, he said, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. David has the nations in the sense of his inheritance. And ultimately, we're going to see that with Jesus Christ. Now I'll show you something that's very interesting. Right at the end of verse 9. I'll read, let me read verse 9 again. The princes of the people have gathered together. That's the nations. The people described as the people of the God of Abraham. Now watch this. For the shields of the earth belong to God. What in the world does that mean? The shields of the earth belong to God. The shields are insignias. They're family coats. They are coats of arms. Every nation has a seal. Every king had a coat of arms. And if you've ever done any uh, research into your ancestry, you, many of you have looked up your family coat of arms. Every ruler of a nation had a coat of arms. Look what it says there at the end of verse 9. The shields, the coat of arms of the earth belong to what? God. They all come and submit to God. There's only one ruler. These princes aren't ruling their own nations individually. They're all coming under one banner, one coat of arms, one insignia. For us, it would be the sign of the cross. For them, it would be the star of David. And so here we see they're all submitting to the rule of God. And here's what it says right at the end. Verse 9. He, God, is greatly exalted. Where? On his throne, in the tabernacle, in Jerusalem, the city of David. So, once you understand the historical context, again, you see how the psalm makes sense. Otherwise, it just becomes a devotional ditty for most people. You can also see why the early church would have given it a messianic interpretation in light of Jesus' death and resurrection and the second coming. Uh, because it's going to be through Jesus that God's ultimate kingdom is going to come. Right now, Christ sits at God's right hand and rules on God's behalf over heaven and earth, whether people realize it or not. But 1 Corinthians 15 says there's going to come a day when Christ turns over the kingdom to the Father. Christ turns the kingdom over to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And everything on earth will come under the banner of the Father's rule, even, the scripture says, Christ himself. So, this passage offers 
the church and offers Christians hope for a future. That one day, what happened in minuscule form in Israel, where the surrounding nations submitted to King David and thus David's king, will one day happen on a worldwide universal scale when God's ultimate kingdom comes and all the nations submit and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Next week we'll pick up at Psalm 48, which, whose superscription gives us no information at all about the psalm. So we'll, we'll pick up with that next week. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for a psalm that gives hope about the future. It talks about all kingdoms coming under your kingdom, under your control. All coats of arms put at your feet so that only one rules, and that ruler is you. It would help us to realize that when we realize, when we understand your position as exalted king and your son Jesus Christ as your kingly ruler over the earth, uh, that emotion and joy and jubilance and excitement should well up in our hearts and we should be as excited as King David was and the people. Oh Lord, help us to follow these commands. Help us to be people under your submission. Help us to be people of joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.